transducer on it. It kept blowing out. We've had uh, two toilets blow out and um, we've flooded the, the building. So we were able to, Jim was able to bring all new line in uh, to a certain point and reduce it down and put a pressure regulator on it. And so we rejoice in the Lord for that. And No, he pulled new pipe. And uh, when he dug, he sent me a picture of the big crater he had dug. The wa original water line was really rusty, and so thank the Lord. It could have been worse, but he, I praise the Lord for giving us men like him. And so things are coming together, and we're doing a few projects in there as well while we're getting ready for VBS. And so uh, I'm just thankful that God has given us that building, and for his glory we will try our very best to use it and see Vacation Bible School a blessing this year. All right, Isaiah chapter 27. Uh, let's pray, and then we'll study, we'll study verse by verse. Father, thank you, Lord, again for your gracious, wonderful uh, care over us. You, you, there's no one like you, Lord, and tonight we acknowledge that you are our God, and we bow before you. We want you to speak to us through your word. Father, we exist to please you, to honor you. And I just pray tonight that you will just for these next few moments help us rest in your word, learn your eternal word, and put it to use in our lives. And uh, Lord, I just pray that if any are watching, whether on, our, on the recording or here in the chapel, Lord, if anyone's not saved, that tonight would be the night that they trust in you, that they might experience that abundant life you've promised us. Father, I just pray for your strength. I ask you to help me as I teach, for I cannot, I wouldn't even attempt to teach without you. Watch over us, Lord. Help us. And uh, again, do something incredible in and through us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Isaiah chapter 27. And just as I begin, I want to take a note. I always like to mention uh, when I find great helps, uh, and, and I want to share with you a commentary that has been invaluable to me. Uh, it's called Ariel's Bible Commentary. It's by Arnold, Arnold G. Frutenbaum. And uh, he is a, a great scholar. He graduated from Cedarville in his undergraduate work and went to Dallas Theological Seminary, majoring, both places majoring in Old Testament, Hebrew and Old Testament. And he is a scholar, went on to get his Ph.D. from New York University. And he writes much of his stuff from a Jewish perspective, um, and a messianic rabbi point of view. It's been invaluable. A lot of the help that I have had this evening's study has come from his resource. And I always want to make sure that I never would plagiarize my sermon, but a lot of the information came from here. And so um, if you are into commentaries, you can get this commentary. i tell you how. It's, like I said, it's invaluable if you want to understand Isaiah because it was written to Jews and it comes from a Jewish standpoint. So there's my commercial. I don't get anything out of that. I just, when I find a great resource, I would like to let you know about it. And if you're interested, praise the Lord. If not, well then just pretend like it never happened. Isaiah, if you will remember, chapters 24 through 27 has been called the little apocalypse of Isaiah because it, it follows the same structure of, of Revelation or maybe Revelation follows the same structure for end times as does this. I am amazed with this book. This book never gets old to me. I am amazed at how 
um, 66 books, how they are so interwoven and they all point to the same message and they all just complement and it, it's wonderful how Isaiah all these thousands of years ago could write about end times prophecy and Revelation could write about it and Matthew could write about it and it all fits together wonderfully and we have the plan of God laid out for us. We don't have to worry. We don't have to fret. And all that's going on in the world today is going on in the United States of America. God is not surprised at it. He has everything under control. We don't need to be panicking. We need to be those who are stable in this time. We need to be those who are fixed, trusting in the Lord, acknowledging that He is God. His plan is merely unfolding, and we are included in His plan. Isn't that wonderful? The God of all creation has included us in His plan. Now, let's look here in verse uh, 1 of chapter 27, Isaiah 27. The beginning phrase says, in that day. Whenever you see that phrase, remember, that phrase points us to a yet prophetic. It's a prophetic passage dealing with future end times. And so he begins by saying, and what we're going to deal with is prophetic in nature, and it puts it in the events of prophetic future. In that day, the Lord with His severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, that twisted serpent, and he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. In verse number 1, we have the punishment of Leviathan or the punishment of Satan. I think this is speaking of Satan. And you say, well, how, how do you know that? Well, you and I both know that... <clears throat> The, de the devil used the serpent to tempt Eve, right? And beguile Adam and on so on and so forth. And you think if he is not very subtle, he is very subtle. How in the world could he get a grown man to take a piece of fruit from a talking snake? He is very subtle. He is very good at what he does. Prophetically speaking, we've come through the tribulation period and now we are dealing with the messianic rule, the 1,000 year literal reign of Christ upon the earth. Now, it's unfortunate there are some who believe that there is no 1,000-year literal millennial reign. And that's unfortunate because the Bible teaches it. As a matter of fact, all throughout the Old Testament, they looked forward and longed for the Messiah's rule and reign upon the earth. Even the New Testament prophets and the New Testament writers look forward to this messianic rule. This passage in this first verse is dealing with Leviathan being Satan. Remember... There are three things here he says. He says three parts of this. Number one, God's severe sword, and he, he, he pairs it with something about Satan. God's severe sword against the fleeing serpent. So God, the Lord, will punish Satan, the fleeing serpent, with a severe sword. Secondly, it says a great sword. God's great sword will against the twisted serpent. Just the other day, I was having some work done on the uh, internet at the house. And the fellow, I was in my office, and I have a door leading into my office there at the house. And the gentleman knocked on the door, and I went to the door, and he said, Hey, there's a big snake out here. He said, I really don't you know, normally uh, you know, just let him go, but this is awful close to the house, and I don't like him close to the house. 
And I said, I don't like them close to the house either. If you want to, just go ahead and put it out of its misery. If not, I'm going to put it out of its misery. And you can say, well, they eat rats and all that. Let me tell you something. I'd rather have a rat than a snake. The devil didn't tempt a rat. He, tempted, he went and worked through a snake. snake. And if you don't believe that snakes are evil, ask my dad. When he was eight years old, he was bit by a copperhead. And so I'll tell you, I don't like them snakes. And so he killed it. And I went out to look at it. This big old snake, and it just was writhing, and it was twisting. And I just thought, you old devil, I knew I was going to teach this. And I thought, you're just a physical representation of the devil. Physical representation of the devil. So he is talking about the devil. He is going to have a great sword against the twisted serpent. And the scripture says God's strong sword will slay the reptile that is in the sea. Now, how do I know or why do I believe this is talking about Satan? Well, in Job chapter 3, if you write these down, I don't have them up there, but if you want to write them down and go back and read about it, you can. In Job chapter 3, verse 8, the Leviathan is mentioned in, in, in close proximity to the devil. Job 41, 30, 1 through 34, Psalm 74, 14, and Psalm 104, 26. I believe this is representative of the devil. What happens at the beginning of the, the, uh, the uh, rule and reign of Christ upon the earth? He takes the devil and binds him. He binds him and he's cast into the bottomless pit for those 1,000 years bound. So, how do I know that's what happens? If you would go with me to Revelation chapter 20. Uh, Revelation chapter 20, you can see this, verses 1 through 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for 1,000 years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the 1,000 years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Two key words in there, serpent, dragon, in, in our text, serpent. And this last word here of 27, this last phrase, it said he will slay the reptile. In many translations, that reptile is translated dragon. Many people believe that this is metaphorical, metaphorically speaking. No, it's literal. The devil will, Satan will be bound and cast into the, the bottomless pit for 1,000 years. Bound. Why? Because the Word of God says it. It means it literally. It's not speaking metaphorically. If the 1,000 years is going to be as great as the Bible says it is, God's going to deal with Satan at the beginning as he said he would. And he is letting Isaiah see this vision. Now, wouldn't you love a time when the devil doesn't bother you? Just Sometimes it's just like, could I just get a minute where I don't have to deal with this? Just five minutes where I don't have to deal with the devil. And yet, the scripture tells us, the beginning of the Lord's millennial reign, he will severely deal with Satan. Notice the song of the vineyard, verses 2 through 6. In that day, still speaking about the prophetic future, in that day, sing to her a vineyard of red wine. 
Who is the vineyard? Well, the vineyard is Israel, but more specifically, it is the regenerated Israel. He's not talking about the natural Israel where someone is born in Israel, and because they were born in Israel, they're part of it. No, he's talking about the regenerated Israel. At this time, he will have already dealt with, in the tribulation period, those who are nationally Jews but not believing in Christ, he will have already dealt with them. They will not make it through the tribulation period. Only those believing Jews will make it through. And this is that regenerated. How do I know? Well, you remember back in Isaiah chapter 5, he begins with Israel as the vineyard, and they were uh, totally unfaithful to him, and as a result, judgment came upon them. Now it's contrasted with this regenerated Israel, now that's with the Lord in the 1,000-year millennial reign. Now notice what the Lord, who is the vine dresser, right? I am the vine, you're the branches, my father is the husbandman or the farmer, the vine dresser. Notice what he does. Verse 3, I, the Lord, keep it. In that day, speaking, keeping with the prophetic future, the Israel is the vineyard and the Lord is the vine dresser and he says, I will keep it. For the first time in Israel's history, they won't have to sleep under the threat of someone overthrowing them. Why? Because the Lord's keeping them. And let me just tell you, he's up to the task. He is up to the task. Secondly, he says, I will water it every moment. It will be fruitful. He will provide for them. Lest any hurt it, any hurt it, I keep it night and day. One, test, one passage in the Old Testament talks about the Lord never slumbers or never sleeps. God's not asleep on the job. He's got it. He's taking care of them night and day. He's watching over His vineyard. And this is the song of the vineyard. Fury is not in me. Who would set briars and thorns against me in battle? This vineyard will be completely free of briars and thorns. Whenever they come up, I would go through them. I would burn them together. Any of the thorns and thistles that might come out and try to, to, to cause them harm or hurt them, he will immediately gather up and burn them. He will protect them. This again is contrasted with Isaiah chapter 5 where Israel is an unfruitful vine. Now she has been regenerated and is now under the careful watch and care of God Almighty. The apple of His eye. Verse 5. Or let, or let him take hold of my strength that he may make peace with me and he shall make peace with me. Any of those in there, these thorns and thistles that come up, he'll deal with them severely that they might make peace with him. You know, we often hear, and I used to hear it a lot, in speaking with an older crowd of people, you'd hear someone say this, yeah, he made his peace with God. How many of you remember or heard that phrase? We don't talk like that any longer. But that what they were saying was biblical in nature. Making peace with God means getting your heart right with him. 
And verse 6, those who come, he shall cause to take root in Jacob. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. The regal kingdom that God said it would be. Budding and blooming, most beautiful. That is the song of the vineyard. In verses 7 through 9, we see the purging of Israel. This is amazing to me because Isaiah is receiving this vision. He's receiving this prophetic vision and he's telling, he's writing it down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I wonder if people thought Isaiah was crazy. At the time of Isaiah's writing, Israel was no way, no how, in any way the regal kingdom that they would be under the reign of Messiah. And isn't it interesting how we can take the word of our doctor, but sometimes we find it difficult to take the word of our Lord? You go to the doctor, and the doctor says, here, I want you to take this medicine. I don't know what chemical compound of this medicine is. I can't know I can't pronounce it. Is anybody else with me? And we look at these medicines, and we say, well, this is going to help me. And upon the word of our doctor, we take the medicine. Right? Yet, how often do we question, Lord, Lord, do you really want me to do that? Are you really saying this? Do you really mean this? Do you really, really, really mean this, Lord? I need to know. I need to know. I need to know. God says, look, Isaiah, write this down. Satan is going to be bound and he's going to be cast into this bottomless pit. There's going to be a song of the vineyard. Israel's the vineyard. And the kingdom you all have always wanted will be here. And God is going to purge Israel. Look at verse 7. He has struck Israel as he struck those who struck him. In other words, he has dealt with Israel primarily in the tribulation period. Before, past tense, he has struck them, those who struck him? Or has he been slain according to the slaughter of those who were slain by him? No, absolutely not. Israel's punishment was tempered with the measure, and the measure was necessary so Israel would not be destroyed completely. When God poured his judgment up out on unbelieving Israel in the tribulation period. He did that to purge Israel so that Israel would be no more. But Israel is more because in verse 8, in measure by sending it away, you contended with it. He removes it by his rough wind. In God's divine sovereignty, he dispersed Israel throughout the world. Why did he do that? Why did he move them out of the promised land? He moved them out to preserve Israel. I find this fascinating. Do you remember when Jesus was young, 
And Mary and Joseph took Jesus and went to Egypt and fled. Interesting. Why did they do that? To preserve the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we know that nothing would happen to the Lord Jesus Christ as part of God's plan that they would go there. God dispersed the Jews. And I find this fascinating. In his divine wisdom and knowledge, he purged them by moving them out so when the tribulation came, he could deal with the unfaithful Israel and then later you'll see he'll regather them together all regenerated, renewed in the kingdom as a, a manner of preserving Israel and his promise to them. We would not be clever enough to think of that. It's only God. Verse 9, Therefore, by this iniquity of Jacob will be covered, and this is all the fruit of taking away his sin when he makes all the stones of the altar like chalk stones that are beaten to dust, wooden images and incense altars shall not stand. As a result of this judgment and the dispersion, when they do come back, they will destroy every semblance of idolatry. God will greatly destroy them, and their altars of those pagan gods will crumble like stone, the astropole will never be lifted again. Jesus Christ alone will be worshipped. And if you think about it, all throughout history, God has a way of purging His people. He has a way of purging His people. And He's very good at it because He's God. Verse 10, we have the destruction of Babylon. Yet the fortified city will be desolate. The habitation forsaken and left at, like a wilderness. There the calf will feed and it will lie down and consume its branches. Why do I say this fortified city is Babylon? Because the closer you get to end times you find out the city opposite of Jerusalem is Babylon. In the end times when... The uh, Antichrist, he'll have commercial Babylon. He'll have religious Babylon. Babylon stands for the kingdom of the devil and the Antichrist. And it was a fortified city, but look, it's desolate. The only good there will be is for animals to eat. Verse 11, when its boughs are withered, they will be broken off. The women come and set them on fire, for it is a people of no understanding. Therefore, he who made them will not have mercy on them, and he who formed them will show them no favor. God is a merciful God. He is a gracious God, but he is also a God of justice. And his judgment will fall on unbelieving men and women. But you said He made them. Yes, He made them. And I don't understand all of it. But they don't believe in Him, so they are not absolved of their unbelief just simply because He made them. They're still responsible to believe. And His judgment falls upon them. And, you know, we have all this today, these people talking garbage and, you know, stupid stuff. Guys... You don't 
have to be intelligent to understand men can't have babies. The, the thought that we're even having this as a legitimate conversation shows how insane humanity is. And we get all been out of shape with this. Guys, let me tell you something. God's word is going to be fulfilled whether you believe it, I believe it, or anybody else believes it. His word is true. Let God be true and every man a liar. And the, the truth of the matter is, this is going to happen. This will happen. And no one can stand before a righteous judge and say, you made me this way. As an excuse. It's not a legitimate excuse. And while I'm on it, the way we combat it is to just keep preaching the word, keep believing the word, keep obeying the word. It's not through arguments on Facebook. It's not through all these other avenues. It's only by opening the eternal word of God and letting his word go forth that we battle it. Anything else is just a waste of time. You can't reason with someone that believes that a man can be pregnant. You cannot reason with them. All sense of rationality is gone. Romans 1 tells us that. That is biblical. Part of their judgment is they have a reprobate mind. They can't discern between right and wrong, good and evil. And it's not hatred. It's the truth. It's the Word of God. And it's interesting how man tries to justify and has the audacity to say, well, God can't judge me because he made me this way. You don't get to make the rules, bucko. He does. He does. Which brings us to what I like the best part of this. Verse 12, the regathering of Israel. I love this. And it shall come to pass in that day, remember the prophetic future, in that day, the Lord will thresh from the channel of the river to the brook of Egypt. The brook of Egypt in the south, the Euphrates River in the north, and all between is the promised land. We're not talking about that little speck of Jerusalem. We're talking about it's all promised. And God is the one that promised it and He keeps His promises. And you will be gathered one by one. Who? Oh, you children of Israel. Church is not in view here. This is dealing with Israel. Verse 13, so it shall be in that day, the same day, the great trumpet will be blown. You remember when, when God's about to do something amazing, a trumpet sounds. What happens next in the prophetic calendar of Christ? We know the rapture of the church, right? What happens? The trump of God sounds, right? The voice of the archangel, the trump of God. And we are out of here. In the scripture, we see. That there's a trumpet will sound. And you say, well, hasn't Israel already been regathered? This will be the second regathering. 
Keep in mind, the first regathering was the gathering of Israel to be judged. The unbelieving in the tribulation period. Now, we know right now there are people who are Israelites by birth who are coming home. I say home to Israel. As a matter of fact, when I was in Israel in 2006, 15 or 16, I can't remember, I found it fascinating they have what they call the Birthright Project. You can go and you can look up the Birthright Project. You can Google it. At that time, Israel was inviting all of the dispersed Israelis to come home. They would help pay for your way home. They would help you find a place to live. They would help you find a job and meet your basic needs until that happened. They were doing that to everyone who was nationally born to Israel. That's not what he's talking about. And we all like to say about all these thousands of people that are coming back to Israel right now, it's a different regathering. This is a regathering that the Word of God says He will gather one by one, individually, every one of the regenerated Israel, those believing Jews that will be in the kingdom of God, will be gathered in the promised land. That trumpet will sound. You say, well, that's kind of bizarre. Didn't anybody else write about that? Oh, please, yes, they did. I'm glad you asked that. Look at Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 31. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Why? His kingdom. His kingdom. His kingdom. They will regather, and notice what will happen. Verse 13. So in that day, the great trumpet will be blown. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria. Those Jews in Assyria. Those who were outcast in the land of Egypt. Those believing Jews who are about to be killed for their faith. All of a sudden, the trumpet sounds, boom. He regathers them, brings them into his kingdom. And guess what they do? They worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. The very thing their hearts has longed for happens. Can you imagine that worship service? Before the Lord Jesus Christ there at the mount, bound, bowed before Him, and all this throng of redeemed Jews worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. It is amazing to me how God has provided all these details thousands of years ago on His future plans. It always cracks me up when I hear someone talk about, you know, knowledge of the Bible. Man, I, str I struggle with what I do know. And there's so much in the Bible I don't know. But when I study passages like this and I see the wonderful sovereign plan of God and how he has indeed promised Abraham through your seed and he kept that promise all throughout. And he said, Isaiah, I'm going to tell you something. I want to give you a little picture. This is how you're going to be able to prophesy in this time you're living with all these people who do not like you. They want to wipe you off the face of the map. 
And like Jeremiah, you're not going to have a lot of people coming and respecting you and following you as a prophet and saying, Oh, we follow Isaiah. We're of Isaiah's church. You're not going to have any guys with shirts on say Isaiah's camp. No. Isaiahites. No. They're going to scoff at you. They're going to mock you. But I want to pull the curtains back and I want to show you why you're doing this. I want to show you that the end result of this is the kingdom of God, not so the Jews can say, we're Israel, look at us, we're it. No, it's they're bowing at the mount of the Lord Jesus Christ saying, you are it. You are everything. Your glory, we worship you, we're here because of you. Not them. They don't walk around and say, hey, we're Israel. Bet you wish you were Israel. No. They'll be on their faces at the base of the mount looking up to the true King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know, I know it's hard because we say, you know, that's Israel, but what about us, Pastor? What about us? I find this fascinating. My belief, and there are others who believe differently, but I believe there's sufficient evidence in the Scripture that points to us as the next prophetic event is the rapture of the church. And I find this fascinating. The Jews longed for the kingdom. And they longed for the Messiah, and the Messiah came, and they missed him. And we're going to be raptured out before their kingdom. We'll bow at his throne before they will bow in his kingdom. That's pretty cool. To me, anyways. The thing they long for, we will experience before they will. And so, the rapture kicks all this off. The rapture happens. Seven-year tribulation period happens on this earth. At the end of the seven-year tribulation period, the second coming of Christ comes. Satan is bound for 1,000 years. At the end... And I don't understand it. You don't understand it. Scholars try to make an explanation for it. At the end of the 1,000 year, Leonel Lorraine, he's loose for a season. He's able to garner an army. And, uh, of course, he is destroyed by the power of Christ. He and all his followers are cast into the lake of fire. All unbelievers are the hell and death give up their dead. As severe as hell is, they're taken and they are cast into the lake of fire forever. It's more severe. According to the scripture, the new heavenly Jerusalem comes down out of the sky. And get this picture, guys. Jesus is sitting on his throne on the Mount of Olives. And as this new heavenly Jerusalem comes out of the sky, he steps right out of his throne right into the new Heavenly Jerusalem. And I'm telling you what, it will be just like the Garden of Eden before the fall. In the very place, I believe, where the Garden of Eden is or was. And so shall we ever be. So what does that mean? Well, number one, if we believe that, we need to be ready. We need to be ready. It reminds me of the woman. They lived out in the country. 
and she and her husband were expecting her first child. And she begged her husband, but he was too busy working that they develop a plan so that when the baby comes, they'd be ready. He was always busy, didn't have time to fool with it. One day she comes to the top of the steps and she says, Honey, I need to go. The baby's coming. He said, You're all right. I'm not ready right now. And she responded, I don't care if you're ready. He's coming whether you're ready or not. That's a poor illustration. But Jesus Christ is not waiting for you to get ready. He's coming on his timetable. We need to be ready. And I think, church, we need to... I don't know how to say this. We don't need guys in the pulpit yelling and screaming and making up stories and and taking the scripture out of context. We need men and women speaking the truth of the word of God. Whether you're at the donut shop, whether you're at work, whether you're a teacher in school, you can speak the word of God and you don't always have to say, you know, this is Matthew 6.33 or whatever. You can just speak the word of God. But why? His word will not return void. It's about time that the church becomes the church of the living God. We stop with all the pretense of, of, of the, the fake facade of religion and let's get down to being genuine Christians. That's what it means to be ready. Fruit of the Spirit. Power of the Holy Spirit in us. Controlled by the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit. Being led by the Spirit. Living in the Spirit. Galatians 5 all teaches that. And we'll have the fruit of the Spirit. Yet... What do we all talk about most of the time? Well, this church does this, or this church does that. Well, tell me, how many of that church has the fruit of the Spirit? That's what matters. Got churches fighting over inconsequential things, things that don't matter. We need to be ready in exhibiting Christ on this earth. Number two, we need to be serving. We need to be serving. We live in a day and time that nobody can do anything without pay. I'm not going to do it anymore. When I grew up, if my neighbor needed something, my dad made me go with him and help him do it. I didn't have a choice. And there was nothing expected from it. We need to start serving men and women today. We need to start serving people with the end goal of sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because listen to me. And my third point is be witnessing. And, and this is it. It is the gospel. It is the gospel. Paul said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation. Nothing else is said in the Bible, the power of God unto salvation. Only the gospel. Yet in our churches, there are six ways to do this, seven ways to do this, how to have friends and influence people, yada, 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 yada. Gospel. Gospel. Because God's plan is unfolding. And, you know, I'm telling you, I'm not a, I like prophecy just because it interests me. I'm not a scholar by any stretch of the imagination, but I know the Bible says as we get closer, there will be more famines. You know what a pestilence? Famines and pestilence, you know what a pestilence is? called a pandemic. It's what we just came through. That's classified as a pestilence. You think a pestilence is as bugs. It's not just bugs. It's anything that could be pandemic. And so what's going to happen? We're going to have another pandemic. And we're going to have another pandemic. Why? Because the Bible says the closer we get to the return of Christ, these are going to increase. 
when the President of the United States stands up and says, listen, there may be a, few, a, fo- a food shortage. We should not be surprised. Why? Because God has used famines in the past to judge nations. He could very well judge America with a famine. We believers will be fine. He's always taking care of his. But I would recommend you have some put back. What did he do when he took Joseph out of slavery and took him to Egypt? There was a famine coming. What did he do with the famine? He told him what? Put back. Why? Because there were seven years of good years and then there were seven lean years coming behind them. So they took those seven years and prepared for the next seven years. We Christians know what the Word of God says. We should be prepared. Right? So, simply obey the Word of God. And uh, it'll be interesting. I, I don't know to what extent we will be in the kingdom. I believe we'll be able to we'll serve in the kingdom. If he that is faithful with a little, I'll make you ruler of much. Speaking of kingdom, you serve the Lord here. Your responsibility in eternity will be greater as a reward for serving him here. Right? Heaven's not a reward. Heaven's a gift that comes through Jesus Christ. A reward is a gift. A reward is a reward, excuse me, a gift. A reward is not a gift. A reward is given to you because you served him here. He rewards you with greater responsibility. So we'll be in and out of the kingdom. We will go to and fro of heaven and between heaven and the kingdom. We'll be able to do that as believers. So be ready, be serving, and be witnessing. And I think God will do incredible things in and through us. I don't believe God gives us this, these uh, visions that Isaiah received. I, don't, I think he gives them to us just so we can say, oh, what a great teaching or whatever. This is interesting. No, he gives it to us to change our living, to be conformed more into the image of Jesus Christ. So knowing the plan of God, we ought to be excited, and when we have the opportunity, we should share the future. Man, when someone's complaining and they don't believe in Jesus Christ, it's an awesome opportunity to say, hey, let me tell you, I know what's going to happen. Well, how do you know what's going to happen? Well, the Bible tells us so. Oh, you believe that book? Yes, I believe that book. Let me tell you why I believe it. I'll tell you exactly why. Because it changed my life. And it can change yours too. And so we have an opportunities all around us. Let's take advantage of it. Can we do that? All right, let's pray. God, we love you.